0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College.
1: I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University.
0: And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at SocAnnex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very happy to be speaking with Elizabeth Berman from SUNY Albany. She is the author of the much acclaimed Creating the Market University, And is working on a new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Economics Became the Language of U.S. Public Policy with Princeton University Press. We're going to talk about economics, economists, our engagement with both, and a whole lot more. You won't want to miss this. What's going on, guys? Too much. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us what's new. What's on your mind, Leslie?
1: There's so much. From the tweets, which tweet did I find the craziest? I thought I blocked you. I don't know. (laughs) Come on. Not your crazy tweet. Oh, okay. Although I'm not on Twitter, so I don't even know how I know about the crazy tweets. But the ones about radical Islam that a president would be retweeting... Or the one. Let's see, is that
0: the one that drew international condemnation? Yes. Like, uh. Yes, yeah. And then he,
1: and then our president basically then tweets back, mind your own business, May. Right? I mean, who does that?
2: The, and, and you wait, you're leaving out that it was to the wrong May. Yes, I it was just somebody with name. I
1: forgot about that. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and living in DC, and I was like, man, if I was, you know, quote unquote, rocket man. Uh, I would be targeting Washington D.C. I want to get rid of, I, I, you know, the guy who was calling me Rocket Man, um, and I'm like, maybe I should move. I don't, I I don't even know. I, I don't. Know.
2: Well, actually, now you're scaring me because I live a few blocks from Sony Studio,
1: <laughs> and uh,
2: so I'll go up and smoke before you do.
1: Oh my goodness, I don't know. Pick pick one, anyone. Pick one, anyone.
0: What you guys think? Did you? I found it very meaningful that the British parliament was talking about the president's unfitness. I don't want to get too political, but it's just nuts to hear like international condemnation.
1: No, seriously. You know, I, I I've been thinking about this, you know, since uh, I don't, I, I don't know. What was the date? What's the date of inauguration? It was well, like, it was the orb.
2: It was the, the, the inauguration was fairly normal. It was the orb where everything went. Uh, we, we lost the timeline.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this since at least the day after inauguration, um, where I've been thinking to myself, you know what, people have been talking about the decline of, of US hegemony for like 30 years now. And I was like, you know what, I actually think that Donald Trump will actually help us achieve that with the quickness in the next two years, simply because America's Uh, standing. Our reputation will take such a nosedive. And I think a lot of what this country has been riding on um, for such a long time has been its reputation above all else. Without that, we are nothing.
2: So I feel, on the one hand, I feel like Trump is uniquely um, bizarre (laughs) and, um, you know, not a traditional, you know, he doesn't have prior military or civilian government experience, for instance, but also he's just unhinged. And so I do feel like he is unique among modern presidents in that respect. But I also feel like, you know, you got to kick against the presentist bias where there's always an urge to see this is the most crucial time in history. Nobody walks around with a sign talking about how the world will end in 349 years, (laughs) right? It's always the world's going to end tomorrow. And um, I feel like there there may be a a tendency to kind of like if we were having this conversation 10 years ago. You know, people would be talking about like how Bush is going to be the end of American hegemony and, you know, this Mm -hmm. uniquely horrible person and everything like that. And
1: yeah, but Gabriel, Gabriel, my point is that I never at any point in time actually really felt that or thought that yeah. until right now. And so I've been in the present for-
2: So you kept your powder dry. Yeah,
1: no, totally. No, so I'm like, <laughs> I'm I am actually really concerned.
2: No, I mean, I am too. Listen, I, I'm not a fan of but... the <laughs> man.
0: Elizabeth, what do you, uh, do you wanna, you, you got anything to say on Trump or are you gonna take a hard pass? on that whole topic
3: you know i guess i guess the the one thing that maybe i would add is that uh is that i think it's interesting to be kind of in the middle of the u.s media environment and i haven't spent any significant amount of the time out of the country since trump has been elected that you just sort of Mm -hmm. you know you just sort of get used to this new normal where every 12 hours there's some new giant event and it just you know your sense of reality starts to feel a little bit it's a little bit warped and i'm just wondering you know if i went and spent six months or a year outside of the country if it would just sort of you know constant kind Of epistemic challenge,
2: you know, would go away that you stop feeling like, is this really the
3: world that we're living in right now?
2: So, uh, <laughs> reminded of this by Beth's comment, but uh, Babylon B, which is sort of an onion type s- site, um, had a headline uh, a couple days ago that said, Man coming out of year long coma, excited to catch up on humanity's progress. <laughs> and, uh,
0: <just> <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah, a lot to take in
3: all the time. Yeah.
0: Can you imagine imagine waking up, like going under five years ago, waking up and someone says, Donald Trump's president, but he might not be for long because he's dealing with the Russians.
3: You know, you start to wonder how much (laughs) stuff we're not paying attention to at all, like how much stuff is just, you know, major, major decisions that are getting made. I mean, not even sort of these sorts of uh, Donald Trump things, but just regular old policy things that nobody are just flying totally under the radar because everybody's attention is constantly consumed with like whatever the latest
2: stuff. Trump tweet is well, it, it, no, well, not even like the tax plan, right? But like, just like crazy shit is happening overseas that okay. we just like, oh yeah, whatever. There was a coup in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Let's let, yeah. let check the president's twitter feed
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, my ability to pay attention to anything that's going on outside of the u.s has just like shrunk down to almost nothing yeah. like you know i subscribe to the yeah. economist to try to like force myself to like read something that's not just about american politics but it's really hard it's just sort of all-consuming
0: i remember going home to cbc news world and it really feels like uh, you're just asleep
3: yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know it's like it's like they're like uh, like, uh And uh, now here's the, uh, you know, the cattle festival in Calgary. (laughs) What a wonderful (laughs) day. You know, that's national news. You know, I've walked out of it actually with a lot more respect for the U.S. system. Because had Donald Trump gotten this much power in the Canadian system, I'm I'm quite sure he could have been a dictator. You know what I mean? But uh, luckily, it seems like a lot has ground down to a halt. Or at least it looked like until we had this massive tax bill which is an insane tax bill can I float a theory by you do you think they all think that they're on their way out and everybody's just looking for uh, looking for their post uh, office work? with the funders type of thing. You think that's going on? It
1: sure, it, I don't. it sure sounds like, it because it, I mean, this is clearly not about what is the best, what's best for the American people. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I want to reserve a little bit of judgment because supposedly they are trying to write in this, this bailout mechanism, uh, where if there isn't the amount of growth that we actually need, um, to see happen um, as a result of these tax cuts, then they're just going to roll them back, right? Um, I I'd really like to I'd really like to see how how you get that going. I think actually less about that, and it's more about I I from what I think they're like. Oh, people are going to see their ta- their tax returns. They're they're going to get returns. So many people are going to get returns this year, that they're going to vote for Republicans in the midterms, like not thinking about whether or not they're going to have a job two years from now.
3: Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm also kind of skeptical that that Republicans really think that they are necessarily on their way out. I mean, I think, you know, I think this is one of the things that happens sometimes if you're sort of, you know, relatively liberal and you're kind of in this like liberal media bubble that it's just hard to sort of adjust your head into the worldview where, you know, the whole the whole idea is that government is too big and it makes sense to cut taxes. And, and, you know, if they're skewed towards the top, that's only because the people at the top are paying most of the taxes right now. And I mean, I think, you know, it's 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 it. I don't think you have to extend things to the point where you say that, you know, people are doing this just because they're desperate and they think they're on their way out to make sense. Well, of do you want to hear what, sense from what from they, they actually are saying? Because I,
2: uh, you know, so so. What, yeah, are so they I, what are these? I mean, so, so I read National Review and all that sort of stuff. But uh-huh. I don't follow the the crazy stuff, right? So I'm I, I, I have no idea what's going on in Breitbart, <laughs> or, um, you know, well or, or or even Before on Wars. Fox News or talk radio or whatever. But um, from what I see them saying, it, it's the idea is that um, they need a win, and that the Republican Party yeah. has achieved uh the legislative and executive branch uh at least nominally in the case of the executive branch and they kept telling for years and years and years and years they kept telling their base well we can't get you this because we don't have the senate okay well we can't get you this because we don't have the presidency okay well now they have the senate the house and the presidency and they still can't deliver uh Repeal of PPACA, or you know, they still can't give other major legislative priorities. And um, you know, you can see how this kind of promise of "here's this thing you don't like, if you put us in power, we'll repeal it," and then they're not able to repeal it. The most obvious example being Roe v. Wade, right? Which yep. social conservatives mm-hmm. have been trying to repeal for forty years now. Um, they But it never happens. And so their base loses trust in them and says, well, you guys can't do anything and be effective, uh, which leads the base to go a little bit crazy. And well, not a little bit crazy, a lot crazy and say, let's just elect some guy who will blow it up, you know, or or or, or just let's stay home. And concretely, right, you do hear um, people say that if they don't get the tax bill through. Um, it'll cause a donor revolt, both amongst the large super PAC type donors and amongst the uh, small donors. That basically they need a win, or they will lose their core. Not not just in the sense of primary voters, but in the sense of like the really hardcore people and especially donors. Um, it, which is not exactly the same thing as oh these are our plutocratic masters. It's much more. Of
0: a... I'm having trouble differentiating. <laughs> well, because it includes because it includes you know, small dollar. I, I, Do you really think?
2: Uh, Well, I I think it's plausible to say that you have a bunch of people who are giving, you know, $200, $500 here and there who want a win, even if those might not be people who would actually tangibly benefit uh, from it. Uh, Some of them might. Some of them might not.
0: I I don't know. I'm living in the in an area where there is plenty of small dollar Republican donors, and they're pretty unhappy about, uh, and uh, this is a Republican district. Well, yeah,
2: because they lose state and local tax deduction, which, you know, uh, is primarily aimed at, uh, like a lot of things in the bill, it's primarily aimed at um, kind of blue state Henry's. Um, But, you know, in the suburbs of blue states, you do have uh, a lot of Republicans, or at least you used to have a lot of Republicans, but now you have some Republicans in the suburbs of blue states, and they would get hit uh, by the state and local taxes.
3: I mean and, and Gabriel, you're also talking about this from like a national. Oh yeah, I, and perspective, I just claimed that at the beginning. That's also yeah. kinda of, right. I mean, but that's also but that's like the relatively right, that's the sort of like thoughtful let's talk about tax yeah. policy perspective. And um my husband listens to conservative talk radio for reasons yeah. I don't entirely understand. He just like does it to like make himself Isn't crazy. So that
2: I am I imagine like the, the albino monk in um <laughs> <laughs> that dan brown novel <laughs> himself.
3: Well, right, so right so they're not talking about um tax policy at all they're not talking about the tax bill they're talking about this um this illegal immigrant in san francisco who killed this woman and i mean i don't even know the whole story because it's like very marginal to the maybe yeah. a world that i live in but that's just what you know it's a it's a it's a immigration story all the time and even you know right as we're in the thick of this huge
1: tax debate that's just not what's well, the reason why they're talking about that is because they're talking about whether or not we're going to over. we're going to go over the fiscal cliff. Right. Um, so, and Democrats are basically, and actually quite a few Republicans as well are saying, well, if we don't discuss DACA, right, if DACA isn't going to be included, um, then sorry, we're just not, we're going to let the government shut down. And so that's one of the reasons why conservative talk radio is bringing that up because they're like, yeah, those crazy Democrats, they hate this country and, you know, and no, you know, let's go over that cliff. I mean, that's what, that's my read on that because every once in a while I will confess I do, I do listen to conservative talk radio for reasons I also don't, I don't understand, but... (laughs) You guys so, realize yeah, that
2: you can get a stereo for your car that will connect to your phone via Bluetooth for like fifty bucks <laughs> plus thirty dollars installation. There's no need to to listen to the radio if there's things that you don't actually enjoy.
1: No, no, no. What I'm saying is, I feel compelled to turn the dial. Like I, I don't understand why. So.
2: So this is something of a change of topic. The um, perennial issue with, a, you know, in about a month, it's time to submit to ASA and uh, which I won't be doing because <laughs> I don't have anything at that stage, but <clears throat> when you do, right, the standard thing is you apply to the regular session. It gets rejected from the regular session. You apply to the section, then they post it to the, they forward it to the section session. It gets rejected from there and then it gets to the round table and we have the round table so that uh, you know, it, it basically everybody knows the reason it exists is so that you can still appear on the conference program and you can still get reimbursed for your um, your you know registration and that sort of thing if your university covers that. And this is one of those weird; it doesn't have to be that way because I've only done a roundtable once and it was okay. But you know, basically there's just you and the other co-authors and there's nobody hanging out to watch. In part because it's a little bit weird to leave. It's one thing to walk out of a session halfway through when there's you know thirty people in the session. It's another thing to get up from a table and walk away when you know the person's boring you. And and so nobody attends Mm -hmm. them aside Mm -hmm. from the people who are there. And um, I I realize it doesn't have to be this way because other disciplines have this kind of like not quite a talk, but you're still on the program, and they're just poster sessions. And poster sessions are. Like, to my opinion, they're, they're so much better in every way than roundtables, because um, you can kind of browse through them. And if ASA had a poster session, I might very well check it out, and I might go through and, you know, every fifth poster, I'd stop and ask the author, can you tell me about this or that, you know, or read it, uh, whereas I'm not going to sit in on roundtables, so... uh Am I wrong? So does everybody
3: do the poster session all at the same time?
2: Well, I think you could do it the same way that you do uh, roundtables, right? Where you could have the econ social poster session and then the Oryx poster session and then the race poster session. Uh, I don't see any reason it couldn't be like that. I
0: I disagree with you, Gabe. I I like roundtables. Now, the hit rate for roundtables, I totally do roundtables because you always have the chance to meet somebody interesting and maybe for every five or six only one of them is really of any benefit but uh i've been at some i was at a round table with ashley mears uh i don't know if i went to the round table or i was at the round yeah. table i totally go to round tables and i attend them uh and and she was terrific and i would have never heard of so her so you're like the sociology version of those
2: stories you hear about bill murray just showing up at somebody's picnic and asking else. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: I like him. i do i i i so I do not share your, uh, your view. Have you ever been to a poster session? Yes. You know, the thing with posters, I didn't, uh, I, I remember I did one for my grad program, like one of those promote your grad program poster sessions. (laughs) And you have to sit there for hours. And I find that very unappealing. And, uh, I know, I, I like poster sessions you know, too. I
3: also suspect there's something of a qualitative, quantitative divide here too, that, that, that uh, you know, I think a poster, I can imagine being very useful if you've got sort of a couple of key graphs or whatever to put on it. But, you know, what are you going to put on it if you mm-hmm. an ethnographer, you put like one big quote and then just, you know, <laughs> hope that people want to <laughs> read your... Uh... Yeah,
2: totally. and also it, like ethics might prevent you from taking, it, like ethnography could be highly visual. You could have pictures of the people you were with, but, you know, that would very often violate confidentiality ethics.
3: I mean, the other benefit I think comes out of roundtables is, uh, and I don't know, this is maybe necessarily something we want to organize the entire conference around, but I think that can be very useful for graduate students who don't have a lot of opportunities to present yet. And it's sort of a soft ramp up to, you know, being in this kind of professional environment for the first time.
0: Yeah, totally. I love meeting graduate students too. So it's like, uh, because they're very smart. They just haven't, uh, you know, their projects aren't no. just worked in as much. And it's a nice environment for that.
3: But I will admit that I don't go to a lot of roundtables. Now and then, if somebody, you know, if there's one where there's a couple people or a couple papers that look especially appealing, but yeah, not that often.
0: Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't circle it on my calendar and try out all the roundtables. But like, <laughs> if you look through the thing, you're like, oh, I wouldn't mind uh, seeing what that paper is about. Usually, it's not very worked in but at least if you go by topic and if you just search out people who share your interests, it's once in a while you meet somebody. It, I think of it like, da- it's like, it's like dating. You have to go through a bunch of bad weeks <laughs> and every once in a while you get a good one.
3: We just, we just, we just uh, ripped the, the, the idea of poster sessions to shreds. And
0: uh...
2: Well, you guys are, you guys are just reaffirming my, uh, my basic idea, which is that, Everything that sucks about ASA is because we want it that way. So.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> wish So I was uh, reading my RSS feed this morning, and I came apro- across a post in uh, Crooked Timber reviewing Richard Reeves' Dream Hoarders. Uh-huh. So full disclosure, I've only scanned the book, but it focuses on aspects of the economy that I've thought about a lot in my own work. And I remember uh, Elizabeth talking about it on her Twitter feed when everyone was buzzing about the book this past summer. So I thought it'd be a, an interesting time to bring it up. Uh, should I go over the book or yeah. main messages? Okay. So I the, the basic thrust of it, the book is uh, when we think about inequality and privilege, a lot of us focus on the very, very wealthy and powerful. like the the 1% or the billionaires. And in education, we talk a lot of, about elite schools, even though a very small proportion of Americans actually go there. But uh that's only part of this story. There's uh, an uncomfortable aspect of this story that involves the privilege and opportunity closure that are enjoyed by people, the p- people like us, uh, well educated people who earn, you know, relatively good money, have stable jobs. And those are the people who, uh, you know, conduct the analyses, write the think pieces and read economic policy think pieces. So it's everybody who's involved in the conversation and, and and the basic argument is that these people, this top 15, 20%, are a big part of uh, the inequality problem. And that there are a lot of institutions and policies that keep this top you know fifth or so in a position of privilege. Uh, and you know, there are examples like 529s, you know, those tax sheltered college savings plans, or the mortgage interest deduction, or you know, system where local taxes pay for local schools. And what's interesting about it to me is uh, how some of these Trump tax policies, you could see as attacking that top 20% that Trump's, you know, we had Robert Francis on last week talking about how people wanted to blow up the system. And when we say blow up the system, I mean, this might be part of it. They're undoing the, they're undoing the privileges of the top 20%. And they're not really necessarily uh, targeting those low-income people. Uh, So I thought that was quite interesting. I I think that the topic is very interesting, but I know it got some blowback. Some people thought it wasn't the way to think about inequality.
3: Yeah. I mean, personally, right? Like this, this, this book. Okay. So I basing my opinion mostly on things I've read online. I haven't actually looked at the book. I I don't like to actually read books. I like to just form strong opinions about them based on, you know, the basis of other people's tweets.
2: I think it was uh, Moynihan who said, somebody asked him if he read a book and he said, no, not personally.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You have after you after you hear enough people talk <laughs> about it. Uh, but I mean, I, my, my reaction was that most of the policy recommendations that he made, or like most of the specific policies he talked about, I would I mean, because I'm I just remembering the home mortgage interest deduction 529s were another mm-hmm. example. That yes, I would agree these are bad policies and don't do anything for uh, inequality overall, but I can't help but feel like saying that hey, the real problem is the top 20% is a bait and switch. And I feel like it's a bait and switch because, uh, you know, if you look at the top 20%, you know, yeah, they're doing okay. But like, you know, their their income's going up like a small amount over the last 30 years. You know, we're talking like maybe is, you know, just, just it's sort of keeping up with the actual increase in GDP per capita while everybody else is just going down. I mean, this is not the group of people who are capturing all the wealth that we're producing right now. And so, you know, so I look at this and I just feel like, yeah, there's a lot of people who would like that to be the story and who have an interest in, in in promoting that version of the story. And I don't think that's really the story, even though I agree with a lot of the specific policy changes that he wants to say. Why
0: can't they both be part of the story, though?
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know what? Well, I mean, I, I this is another thing that almost made my head explode actually was hearing that like the next thing that's going to be on the Trump agenda is welfare reform. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are, are you kidding me? Right. Are you kidding me? Right. Do you know how many homeless people I see on any given day? Do you know, like there are wards here and one, there is one ward here in Washington DC where 50% of the children who live in that ward live below the poverty line. Like, right. And, and we're talking welfare reform here. I, right. And so, and the thing is, I actually think that there are a lot of people who enjoy that, you know, um, that, that enjoy like certain, uh, I can't even, certain tax uh, benefits, right who, okay, you kind of need that, you know, in order to then be able to afford your family vacation, right? And, and yeah, people should be able to go on vacation, but there are people who can't eat. So um, I think we can focus on both. Like, what are things that are necessary, right? What are things that are necessary, number one? Number two, what are things that will actually realistically lead to, uh, to economic growth? right? And number three, like, why do we need to get rid of the death tax again, right? I, I'm, yeah, I think, I think we should be focusing on both. And I actually do believe that, you know, there is a significant portion of people in the top, you know, 20%, right, who actually are dream hoarders, who part of what they're doing is they're trying to make sure that their kids, um, Are do well, and it doesn't matter if it means they have to elbow out, you know, a few working class and low income kids to make sure that their kids do well. I
2: I think there's two separate issues that are worth disaggregating. So on the one hand, I I agree with Beth that you know if you look at, you know, where the incidence of growth, you know, and that basically the long tail of the the curve is extending, all that sort of thing. That that's all true, right? That. a wildly disproportionate um, amount of the economic growth has gone to, you know, basically the the far right tail of the distribution, not not just the top quintile. Um, so, in maybe in TNT senses, that's true. Um, but a, if you look at more robust welfare state democracies, mm-hmm. they don't do it just by pure soak the rich, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they 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 basically have, you know, if they have VATs and things like that, mm-hmm. which are not a tax that's targeted at the far right tail they they do um tax intensively basically the top half of the distribution Mm -hmm. second of all um even if we do assume that you know for tnt purposes it is an issue of like the far right tail not the top quintile there's other aspects in which the top quintile really does shape inequality Mm -hmm. and broadly speaking i'd say tnt or tax and transfer is because every time I use that acronym, nobody knows what it means. So uh, <laughs> tax and transfer is um, mostly an issue. It, you know, you could say that that's an issue where we really should be concerned with, um, you know, the super rich. And, you know, you could talk about taxing the super rich and having UBI and that sort of thing. Okay, fine. Yeah. But with the top quintile, then you get into all sorts of regulatory policies that do structure inequality greatly. So, you know, where is people's money going a lot of it goes towards housing Mm. and the reason it goes towards housing is because there's huge barriers to building uh mostly regulatory and especially in blue states Mm. um and that's entirely an issue of the top quintile basically protecting their lifestyles by saying we don't want traffic you know Mm. or we don't want to have to uh you know deal with dense parking Mm. or we don't want to have more people in our school district and so they prevent building and you have this ridiculous thing in berkeley of people there's a lot that is currently zoned to allow three small houses, but it just has one small house. Mm -hmm. And the person who bought it had to go through two years of litigation to build three small houses, even though it's already zoned for that. They weren't trying to get it rezoned. It was already built, uh, zoned for three small houses. And the neighbors raised hell about it. And one guy was saying, if you build these extra houses, there'll be a shadow on my tomato garden and Mm -hmm. I can't grow tomatoes. Okay. So... Yeah, but, it, but, but, you know, on top of that, you have things like, you know, how do school districts work and all that sort of thing. You have occupational licensing. So there's all these ways in which the Henrys, even if 529s and all that doesn't change the total tax incidence nearly as much as, you know, various other policies do. Um, these are still the people for whom the regulatory state. And the kind of like soft middle class welfare state is written, especially in kind, not necessarily transfer payments.
0: Well, Gabe, there's also a lot of market solutions that uh, do the same thing. For example, not subsidizing uh, tuition or not price controlling tuition. Having a $20,000 public school tuition completely is a, a benefit to the these dream hoarders or you know that's and that's a that's a removal of government you know regulation to not be price controlling uh or or for example uh just the mere the basic fact that uh cities locally finance their school districts instead of uh spending money to the a central authority who would uh, you know, redistribute it more progressively, like they do in Canada. Like that's these are those are market solutions. You're In them. a
2: lot of states, they have Robin Robin Hood laws where the, the the money basically all goes into a central pool at the state level and gets reallocated to uh, school districts.
0: Sometimes you I, yeah, have sometimes,
2: it, it, but that's how it works. I'm pretty sure that's how it works in California and Jersey. Um, I'm not in sure New what. Jersey,
0: other yeah. In New uh, Jersey, it's uh, equal spending per head, but well, what go. ends up ha- Yes, but what ends up happening when it's equal? We have, for example, my district where every everybody's kid is uh, everybody's spending, you know, five ten grand a school year on private, you know, a, a supplementary lessons, and they all have computers at home, and nobody needs, you know, uh, social or the need for social services delivered through the school are much less, and uh, you know, a kid, a, a kid in Newark to be put on parity with a kid in our school district would need a lot more money spent on them. Like but now you're talking
2: about family background uh, characteristics. You're not, I mean, you're saying that there's a counterfactual where the redistributive state actively compensates for um, differences yeah. in pre- preschool endowment. Fine, but that's a very different thing from saying, oh, there's, you know, the rich neighborhood has a better property tax base, and so it has better schools for that reason. What, what you're well, really saying, no- because in states where that you still redistribute. It doesn't matter. You, you, it's not enough to, uh, overcome the existing So
1: no, this is how it, no, this is how it matters, Gabe, right? Because even if you're saying that there's equal, even if you're saying that there's equal funding, no one school district, one school district has nicer buildings, one school district you know, you can actually then get extra funding, right? You know, we like most districts actually have extra money that if you can then, you then apply for a grant or you go and you appeal to the school board and say you need this extra money and you get it. And that those are the kinds of things that actually, number one, helps to increase how much money you pay your teachers, right? And number two, just by having nicer facilities and having... You know fewer, you know students of color and fewer and fewer poor students, right? Like also, it acts as a draw for the best teachers, right? And if we're saying and if we believe that teachers are actually the most important um, input in schools, um, having to do with student outcomes, then I think that that's where we see that inequality. We see that inequality. So you need a little bit more money. And those um, in those, in those poor districts, just to be able to compete with trying to get teachers who Well, I'm not there
2: sure you'd have to, because you can have poor schools that have good assets and that have good plussing, right? So it's not just the case that, oh, the rich schools all have new construction and tons of grants, because uh, that can happen at uh, poor schools in poor neighborhoods, too. But I, I think the latter part of what you're saying is actually more interesting, in that you're emphasizing the extent to which there's basically sorting. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. my friend, uh, Megan McArdle had this piece a couple of weeks ago in Bloomberg where it got mega retweets because people just liked the title. And I, I amused myself greatly by doing a Twitter search for who tweeted it to see what they were saying about it. But um, you know, she, the title of the piece was something like why um, libertarians were wrong about school vouchers solving problems. And so it got a bunch of, um, you know, uh, you know, people who were basically like, "You had me at why libertarians were wrong," but if they <laughs> if they read the whole piece, they would see that it's actually much grimmer than that, and that what she was arguing is that the whole idea of voucher solving problems was premised on the idea that schools can do a lot, and, um, and then if you actually look at it, you see that most of what's going on is just peer sorting, and that um, not not, and that parents want their kids to have a desirable peer group however they define desirable and Mm -hmm. you know and so you end up getting sorting in any kind of system and the um and the the parental effects the kind of like family background effects and the peer group effects dwarf any type of school treatment effects and so it's just kind of like a, a recipe for nothing will work
0: yeah, but not doing anything ensures that those who are already well positioned are going to be at an advantage, right? There's the, the my main point is that the presence or the the presence of government meddling in things isn't necessarily, you know, a driver of uh, dream hoarding. And and the our collective choice not to level the playing ground is part of what keeps dream hoarders in business.
3: You know, I, I just make one other comment about why I don't, I'm not crazy about the whole dream hoarder narrative that, that that is going along with this book. And, you know, I think Gabriel, I don't like I actually agree with a lot of the, you know, the claims that you're making and the sort of the, the policy implications of the fact that that, you know, that, that there's a certain demographic that's able to um, capture a lot of government benefits that effectively go itself its, its own way and kind of uh, create conditions that are favorable to its own Reproduction. But I also think that there is this kind of story that goes with it where when people write this, these articles about this book, you know, they, they, they write about, they write about, you know, the people who both people got Ivy League degrees and, you know, one of them works in finance and one of them is, you know, has some high powered job on Wall Street. And they're really talking about this group that they're saying, like, on the one hand, the story is, okay, this is an issue of the top 20% capturing benefits for itself. But the story that's being told is really still a story about the top couple of percent in terms of of who is being blamed for this. And I think if you really look at, you know, particularly people who are in that kind of 80th to 90th percentile, that you're not seeing people who are doing exceptionally well. Right. These people are going to be disproportionately in the largest, most expensive metropolitan areas. Anybody who lives in the Bay Area and is making $90,000 a year is not, you know, upper middle class i think they're just kind of maybe i'm sure people are able to get by just fine but 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 they're not in the demographic
2: that people are picturing when they tell the story about who dream borderers are yeah and that's precisely because the incumbent owner that's precisely because they don't allow more building
3: yeah sure no I follow the paper of allowing more building
2: if if rent was $2500 a month $90,000 would be right, great probably. but you know it, a place where rent is four thousand forty five hundred dollars a month uh, $90,000 feels poor.
0: But even with $90,000, there's a, there's a lot you can do when you're earning 95 in a country where like the median is 45, you know? You can you you can you can put money in uh financial investments. only like 10-15% of uh of the country is is even putting money aside in any serious way, you know? Uh Yeah,
1: well, I mean I don't know, Joe. I mean, I you know, and not to plug somebody else, but you know, NPR has been doing this series <laughs> where they go and talk to people who make a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year, and I, and these people can barely make ends meet.
0: Well, I, I'll say, I'll say, at Queens College, I have students whose parents are expecting them to help with the bills, uh-huh. which I don't think anybody with six figure earning parents no, I don't, I don't feel is asking of their children. You know, uh, there is, there are people who like, uh, have to take crappy jobs for health insurance or, you yep. know, their, their parents' house isn't big enough that they can live in the basement okay. while they do an internship. 90 grand, even in New York city can buy you privileges that are definitely not available when you're a normal unquote person who makes 40, 50.
1: No. And that's, and, and that's, that's definitely true. Right. But at the same time, I think part of the question is, you know, the people are people who are making $90,000, $100,000 a year are actually struggling in places like New York, in the Bay Area, et cetera. Right. So if they're even if, if they're kind of struggling, why are we looking? Why are we looking solely at them as the dream hoarders and not like looking at the top top. Right. And also, why aren't we looking at corporations? I'm sorry, we talked about this last show, but I don't understand why. I don't understand why we don't why we don't more effectively tax corporations and why and why we keep like using this, this same tired line of, you know, you know, lower taxes to corporations will definitely, definitely, definitely um, lead to more jobs. Right. I mean, I, but we we already tax
2: corporations higher than most countries. Yeah,
1: we tax corporations higher than most com- most countries, but we also allow all of these loopholes so that their actual real tax rate is really not that high.
2: So it sounds like you support the corporate provisions of the new tax bill, which would basically you know, <laughs> lower the statutory rate and eliminate many of the deductions.
1: Well, so so the yeah, but but the devil's in the details, right? And yeah. since like no one seems to have actually read, Um, what's in the details, right? I don't know. I don't trust it.
0: Anybody want last word on this one?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I I do have the last word. I, you know, one last thing to say is that, you know, I think nobody's saying that somebody who makes $90,000 in New York city is not doing better off than somebody who makes $50,000 in New York city. And there's a lot more people who make $50,000 than who make, $90,000. But, you know, but the the issue that I take with this whole narrative is that it's somehow the fault of people making $90,000 that the people making $50,000 aren't doing better. And I just think that the evidence for that is pretty limited that, you know, that if you look at the gap between what the median household income is, and what the median GDP per capita is, you know, there's a lot of money that is out there that is just not going to the bottom 80% at all. And that's not because it's going to percentiles 81 through 98. It's because it's all going to the very top well, end. I, I, so. I
2: think it is, it's not the people who make 90,000 fault that the people who make 50 make 50, but it is the fault that it, but it is to a large extent their fault that the rent is $4,000. And so they're, you know, PPP compared to living in Houston is effectively 35.
1: Yeah. And kind of, I think the last thing that I would say, I mean, it's like, I'm not advocating class warfare or anything here, but, you know, you know, I'm all, I'm often struck. I'm all, I'm often struck by this. Like, for example, you know, when we see, you know, like an Asian plaintiff, uh, you know, claim discrimination by saying that affirmative action adversely affects him or her, right? Rather than just looking at, you know, like the relative test scores, et cetera, of white students and not saying, oh, hey, I'm just being discriminated against. Look at me compared to white students, right? Um, You know, I think a lot of the complaints of, when I think about a lot of the complaints of the middle class, however they want to define themselves and how they're often left out of conversations, et cetera, et cetera, I actually think you know, a lot like a lot of what all of us are saying actually does boil down to, hey, you know, like middle class people and lower income people actually have more. They have more to to actually gain by coming together. Right. Um, to try and demand more of the top 10, 10, 5 percent. Right. Then they have to gain in actually gaming. Trying to game the system against each other. Um, why don't they do that more?
0: I think we'll sort it out in our special forum of contemporary sociology. <laughs> on, uh, Richard, what's his face's <laughs> dream orders? We better move on. <laughs> and now we turn to Elizabeth Pop Berman from SUNY Albany. Elizabeth authored the much admired "Creating the Market University" in 2012 with Princeton University Press and now she's working on a new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Economics Became the Language of U.S. Public Policy, also with Princeton. We're very happy to have her join us. Welcome, Elizabeth. Uh, Thank you. So tell us about your new project, Thinking Like an Economist. What's it about?
3: Well, um, it kind of grew out of my first book, right, which looked at, um, looked at, at, at the shift that universities had in terms of becoming more entrepreneurial over a period of several decades. And The punchline of that story, which was not really where I expected to end up when I started, was that a lot of it was um, first driven by government policy, and second, really driven unintentionally by this shift to thinking about about, um, technology and technological innovation as being something that could drive economic growth. And so you get a whole bunch of policies in the late 70s and the early 80s that directly and indirectly kind of encourage encourage. More entrepreneurial kinds of activities in academic science that uh, that really are motivated by a new set of economic ideas, and so that kind of got me interested in you know well what is the role of economic ideas in policy, and then uh, you know I think as a sociologist we all have kind of a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about economists and how economists get all the attention, and so uh, so I sort of sort of interested in it it from a from a personal level too, and then and then there's also the piece of it that it felt like. that across lots of different types of policy areas, there's been this shift towards um, economic language and economic justifications becoming the reason that we uh, that we justify particular kinds of government policies. So whether it's in terms of saying, you know, we need to do this particular thing because it's going to cause economic growth, or we need to, you know, invest in education because it's an investment in human capital. But this was just an increasingly common language for talking about about um, what policy is trying to do. Um, and so the book is basically, uh, it's, a it's a historical story. A lot of it focuses on the period from about 1960 to 1990. Um, and it shows both how, uh, how economics and particularly microeconomics, I pay very little focus on macroeconomics in the book. Um, but so how, how microeconomics and microeconomic arguments kind of, um, enter policy, how economists established, uh, new kinds of locations for their ideas. So both organizationally in different government uh, agencies and so on. And also by, uh, by expanding into areas like law schools, public policy schools. Uh, and then once, uh, once this sort of advance of economic reasoning had been stabilized to a certain part, I look at how that plays out in particular policy domains. And so I look at, uh, changes in, in antitrust policy in environmental policy and, um, in, in higher education. And so, I, uh, uh, yeah. And so, so, the, so the argument i try tried to make is that, is that you can really see, um, claims that come from economic expertise and, 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 and sort of economic ways of thinking about policy problems shape the range of options that people are willing to talk about and kind of constrain where, you know, I, I don't think they determine policies. I'm not, you know, I don't want to overemphasize that. I don't want to make the argument that economists determine anything by any means. I think their influence is often kind of marginal. But I think by kind of shaping the terms of debate, there's a real uh, visible effect on the kinds of conversations
2: that we are able to have.
0: Could you maybe flesh out how do economists think they're differently from regular people and maybe different from us?
2: Um, well, it, or an even simpler question, has their role been welfare enhancing?
3: <laughs> um, I think, uh, I don't think that's actually a simpler question. <laughs> but i um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think for me, there's sort of two ways of thinking about how economists think. Um, one is sort of this basic package of very simple economic concepts that I don't think uh, have much to do with actually being trained as an economist, but just thinking in terms of incentives, thinking about terms of, of cost benefit analysis, thinking in terms of, um, of, of trying to uh, create institutions that are going to going to encourage people to do the things that you want to do, thinking about efficiency as a, as a valuable and worthwhile policy goal. Um, and so I think there's a piece of it that is, um, it's really almost the econ 101 version of economics. It's not the especially sophisticated version, but it's the version that you might pick up if you get say a master's in public policy, right. And you, and you take a few courses that are economics or that kind of have an economic background and you use this broad set of tools for, for learning to think about policy problems. I mean, so that's one way of thinking about it. I think the other way is thinking about it as there isn't one way of thinking, of, like an economist, and what that means uh, evolves over time with the discipline of economics itself, right? And so, and so the issues that are on the agenda in economics as a discipline are going to vary across subfields. They're going to change over time. Frameworks are going to change. You know, you have periods where theory is more important than where. Empirical research is more important, and so I think there's also this piece of it that's about creating these lasting links between um, economics as a discipline and the policy domain that allow ideas to move back and forth uh, very easily and relatively influentially as economics
1: itself evolves as a discipline. Uh, now I've so, forgotten what Gabriel said. <laughs> yeah. So I have. To, so so I actually have. I actually have like two two points. Right. So. Um, uh, that you know, hopefully you'll comment on. So one has to do. So we, our students, our, our majors have to write a senior thesis, and you know, one of like one of my students is writing his senior thesis on um on the sort of the relative uh what is, status of behavioral economists versus oh. um versus cognitive psychologists. Right. Um, Yeah. And so and so basically he's doing this kind of experiment where he's basically going to have people, you know, read the work, read work that's basically exactly the same. Right. Um, (laughs) And only change the title of the person who's written it from cognitive psychologist to behavioral economist to see whether or not people rate the work as being actually a lot better and better informed when you have one title versus the other, right? Um, and yeah, then that's
3: the, very interesting,
1: yeah, right. And then because the, he actually he actually thinks that if you just slap economist uh, behind something, then it, it 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 always actually is seen as like smarter and better informed than anything else, right?
3: So my guess is that a lot of that will depend on who he's actually using for his uh, sample. <laughs>
1: That, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. When, when yeah. You no, know, so he's like probably, actually yeah he's using he's using undergraduates and faculty.
3: Okay, so people um, who are going to be kind of in an academic environment already and who are sort of yes maybe have some broad sense of like this sort of status hierarchy. It's yeah, kind of, so, because if you look at, at at public surveys, people don't particularly have more or less trust in economists than
2: you know many other different professional groups like there's no sort of when uh when was when were those public surveys collected because i'm thinking like you you have this huge public profile i feel like the public profile for economists especially applied microeconomists has been increasing over the last 10-15 years with like you know you have a radio show and blog called freakonomics uh it's you know that's really a lot of it. Is just general social science. Yeah,
3: I don't know. I mean, it's a question because I feel like I've seen stuff that's been maybe, maybe not not that old, but it could be five years old or so. So it's possible that there's been more change relatively recently.
0: How much? How much do you think economists really influence the process? I mean, I uh, I, I recall uh, in a Canadian context, uh, I worked for a little bit in a political party and. We generally sought out the economists who supported the policies that we wanted to implement anyways, rather than turning to economists to figure out what to implement.
3: Yeah, no, I actually totally agree with that and think that the way that the influence matters isn't about sort of being able to push specific policies in one direction or another. It's sort of a more of a long-term shift in um, changing the terms of debate Mm -hmm. and changing the kinds of conversations that people have. So uh, I think you know, I think if you look cross-nationally, I think there are definitely specific contexts where where economists might have a lot of influence. Um, There is a new book that just came out about economists and tax policy by uh, Johan Christensen that uh, uh, compares the influence across several small countries. And basically, you know, what he argues is that in countries where you've got kind of a strong, independent, expert-driven tax system, uh, you do have real sort of influence that you can argue is causal influence. But when you're talking about people just sort of providing advice to policymakers, it's basically like what you're saying, Joe, that, you know, policymakers seek out the people who line up with what they already want to hear. I mean, I do have cases. I mean, I think you can make the case that in antitrust you do have this kind of, um, of, of real causal uh, effect on what the nature of policy looks like over the long run. And some of that comes through, Um, having a policy area that's driven heavily by, uh, by the executive branch and by the courts and isn't particularly driven by, uh, Congress and legislation. Um, but I think, I think, you know, what, what happens in those kinds of cases is that, uh, you know, you sort of find ways to, uh, convince people, convince other experts, convince lawyers in this case, partly by, um, you know, expanding over time, expanding a role in law schools that, Thinking about antitrust, for example, in terms of uh, consumer welfare and in terms of consumer welfare being uh, the core goal and what you're trying to achieve by having antitrust policy ends up, um, uh, you know, eventually you can see that institutionalized, right? And so it's institutionalized through court decisions, it's institutionalized through practices in the antitrust division and the FTC so that this becomes kind of the only way that people are willing to do it. And at that point, you have real causal influence, but it's not because somebody recommended a specific policy. It's more this sort of long-term process of shifting the conversation, and then through one of various means, institutionalizing those changes so that so
1: that other people. Okay, talk so that when way you, you. Oh, sorry,
0: you go. This. No, okay, you go this. yeah,
1: because because recall, I said I had I had two two comments. The second comment is on my commute to work. Um, on my commute to work, I I very, very often will meet up with um, a commuting buddy who works for the Fed. He's an economist, and he very, very often talks about, you know, like economics being on the decline, about, you know, the, um, the input. Uh, the, the input, uh, and, but also the input of economists being not as important in shaping policy anymore. And I can tell that he feels uh, that he actually believes that's so, right? So um, is, is he right?
3: I mean, I think there's two ways to think about that, maybe. And I you know, say kind of jokingly, maybe that's because he's a macroeconomist. But I do think there is this relative shift, right, in the in the status both within the profession and externally in macro and microeconomics. And so, you know, I do think there is sort of a more pervasive sense of unease in macroeconomics about, about where things are going and, and, you know, what, what influence is going to be in the future. And I don't see that happening in the, Mm -hmm in the microfields to the same degree. I mean the other thing you could say is well a lot of this is a question of like what's happened in the last year and we've sort of tossed expertise out the window entirely. Um, and so right so you know it, I guess it depends on when he's been saying this and if it's uh you know since November 2016 I think it's a whole different different story than if you're talking about
0: Yeah, the
1: years. No, I think he's been saying like for the past 10 years, he's felt like there's been a bit (laughs) of a decline. I
0: have a question. So when you say shifting the terms of the debate, in my mind, I imagine the mechanism to be like a proliferation of concepts or some type of framing of the cost benefit of making choices. So what, like, what specifically are into your mind, some great examples of the specific ways that Economics has reframed our debate to be something that it wouldn't be otherwise.
3: Yeah, well, I think I think environmental policy actually provides really good clear examples of this because, you know, so the big environmental pieces, the big pieces of environmental legislation, you know, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. I mean, these are passed in the early 1970s and They are past kind of coming out of this period of social movements and of people, you know, having millions of people show up on Earth Day and these kinds of things. And they're all very much um, framed around uh, establishing new kinds of of rights, having rights to clean air, rights to clean water. Um, And uh, everything is set up in terms of these absolutes, right, that we're going to, uh, you know, that we're going to uh, eliminate uh, health effects resulting from from having... uh, water pollution, and so on. And so you have, in this period, this whole new regulatory framework that's set up, that is very much about, um, uh, that's kind of dominated by people who've got this enforcement mindset, who have this, uh, this idea, you know, that's sometimes written into law that what we want is to have no pollution at all. Um, And, you know, it's really economists who come in and say, well, uh, this is just not feasible, and it's irrational. And, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to say that we have a right to a clean environment in some absolute sense. There's always costs and benefits and trade-offs to uh, making these kinds of decisions. And so, you know, so over the course of uh, of the 1970s and into the and into the Reagan administration, you have this gradual advance of cost-benefit analysis, where you know, you all of a sudden you're going to say, okay, well, we can think about um, what are the costs of allowing a certain amount of pollution in our water and what are the benefits and, you know, how many people are actually going to get sick or actually going to die from this. And uh, you know, what's the value of the the wildlife that's going to be killed if we allow our lakes to have a certain amount of pollution in them. And, you know, initially there is a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback to this. And people just are fundamentally opposed to the idea of thinking about something like putting a value at, a monetary value on human life, um, but what happens is that over time, you have a gradual acceptance of, of the idea of thinking about this in terms of costs and benefits, and that quantifying these kinds of um, these kinds of decisions is, you know, not only appropriate but is sort of the only rational way to to think about them, um, and you know, it's mostly happening through the regulatory system. But by the time that you are in the early 80s, you have a very different way of thinking about how you should make decisions about environmental policy. And, uh, you know, to, to, I mean, I think there's cost to that and there's benefits to that, right? That, that on the one hand, the idea that you're going to have no pollution anywhere at all is probably just ridiculous. But, I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly, uh, it's certainly correct that you can only uh, spend, uh, you know, that, that, getting that last, like 1% of of pollution out of the water is going to be expensive and perhaps not worth it. Um, But at the same time, you know, making these decisions, cost-benefit decisions, uh, makes them these very technical decisions. It kind of takes politics out of it in a certain way. At the same time, it hides other kinds of politics because these political debates are fought out through, you know, competing ideas about what the value of a statistical life is instead instead of being fought over. Um, over the, the you know, political fights that are actually hiding underneath that. And so, you know, so I think it's got trade-offs in terms of, of whether, what what parts of it are an improvement and what parts aren't. But I think like, that's a good example of how you really have a change in how people think about a policy domain.
2: So I, I was thinking about that, you know, I, listening to the story about in, the change in environmental policy from command and control to more of an emphasis on, um, you know, Pricing for different elements, property rights for different elements, all that sort of thing. And uh, it reminded me of Alan Fisk's work on relational models where he distinguishes between, um, you know, various ways that we can think about economic relations. But two, the two that are relevant are authority ranking, which is kind of like we have a hierarchical relationship. The superior has duties and obligations. The inferior has duties and obligations. And the inferior's duty is to obey. Um, you know, so the state basically says, this is what to do Um, in contrast to a, a market pricing relationship, which is we treat this as a market, maybe it's barter, maybe it's cash, but we have an explicit commensuration where any two objects can be commensurated on a common scale for each other. And so we have things like a, you know, statistical value of a quality adjusted life year, or, you know, a statistical value for a bald eagle, you know, it, it, the excess mortality of bald eagles or something like that, rather than just saying, you can't ever do anything that would, um, you know, kill a bald eagle. And that's a command and control thing. And there is a logic to it, right. Where, um, sometimes it can be more efficient. Um, but like you said, people very often balk at it because they have a way of thinking about something in terms of it's simply wrong. Um, Regardless of whether and whether it's efficient or not, almost saying, well, whether or not it's wrong makes it it's still efficient, that, that almost seems more offensive until you get used to thinking of that way, in which case you just normalize it, and then it becomes the that's the way it is.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, and that's sort of really like the long term changes here is how that normalization has spread, right? And I'm not putting a moral value on whether the spread of the moralization itself is a good thing or a bad thing. But if you if you go back, like, um, a lot of my story sort of starts at the Rand Corporation and stuff that was going on in the 1950s. And in the 50s, you know, so you've got a situation where, you know, you've got people who are sort of the most kind of, you know, top of their field, kind of hard headed quantitative types, and, and they uh, can't They're not they're not they're not able to put a value of life on losing a, uh, you know, losing a a airman who is flying a plane because that's simply beyond the pale. Nobody nobody's willing to talk about it. And, you know, it takes a while even for economists to become comfortable with making these kinds of value judgments uh, or sort of sort of putting these numbers on on things that in another context we would think of as as beyond valuing in that kind of way. Um, but then, you know, eventually, economists come to take it for granted. And then eventually, I think, um, uh, if maybe not the entire population, it's certainly within kind of broad policy conversations that becomes sort of a totally normal way of thinking about,
2: about the problem. So the, the military context reminds me of um, an interesting, so, so a book that I enjoyed a while ago that Miguel Centeno had me read was, um, what's it called? A Perfect War um, by Gibson, who I think is a sociologist at Cal State Long Beach. And it's about um the hyper rationalization of war in Vietnam, although mm-hmm. really it's about Westmoreland's era of the war. so um, if you if you don't know the history of Vietnam or the Vietnam War, basically, the early war was run by Westmoreland, and then the later war was won by run by um, uh, Creighton Abrams. And the Westmoreland phase of the war, was rationalized and it had like point values attached to different things. And there was a certain, and and like some of the commanders, this wasn't necessarily Westmoreland's policy per se, but there were certain commanders for a different district who would have like point values assigned to, if you capture a tactical radio, that's a hundred points. If you kill an officer, that's 200 points, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Or, you know, if you accidentally kill a civilian, that's negative 75 points. Uh, And that was how they measured success in the war was by counting Mm -hmm. these points together. That all went away when Abrams took over. Uh, And Abrams had more of an emphasis, uh, less on how many enemy, uh, you know, putting point values on a war of attrition. And uh, instead, Abrams had this idea of, we're going to clear territory of the enemy, train our local allies, and then have our local allies hold the territory. Um, And there was no point values assigned to any of that. Um, But, you know, the Westmoreland phase of the war didn't work, right? Um, and so it's, you could take that as an example of how, um, rationalized thinking can go awry. And, you know, if you're quantifying things and commensurating things that can be good, and it seems to have been fairly effective in U.S. environmental policy, but, um, it also seems to have been pretty effective in the first phase of the Vietnam War, really is, well, you know, the pre tet phase of the Vietnam War.
3: Yeah, and maybe this is one of the great. Right, this is one of the real risks that goes along with this kind of quantification is that um, I think it's easy to have a lot of faith with it, right? Uh, you know, the piece of the Vietnam story that I know best is sort of the, the McNamara part because you know he brought all these brand guys over who then ended
2: up going. Yeah, McNamara and Westmoreland is the same face. Basically, Johnson, yeah. McNamara, and Westmoreland all went together, and then after that, it was uh, Abrams and Nixon.
3: Yeah, basically. I mean, so, right. So there's a big part of my story that's basically about all the guys McNamara brought from Rand, who then, after they're done spending their time at the Defense Department, go over and work for the Budget Bureau, where they launch basically uh, similar kinds of, of, of methods, you know, basically more or less cost benefit methods for thinking about policy into things like the war on poverty, into all these different social agencies. And that's really a big piece of the story of, of how this all spreads. But, but, um, you know, I think, I think, it's very clear that um, that there was a lot of confidence in quantification that wasn't really justified in that period. And I think that five years later, when those people had all made all their efforts to um, try to uh, to rationalize social policy, uh, you know, they ended up very much in the same place that everybody thought it was going to be the greatest thing and solve all the problems and would be able to make great government decisions. And instead, you end up, um, you know, just realizing that that quantification and cost-benefit analysis and all these methods are tools and they can be useful tools but they've got a lot of limitations as well and so you know so i think there's a piece of it that kind of comes in and out at different moments of the story that's really about the um you know the the arrogance of being too confident in one's methods mm-hmm. which i don't think is necessarily something that's only associated with uh economists but but could be any kind of of um you know social science or any kind of knowledge production, really, right, that uh, that our, our ability to take the things that we know about how the world works and apply them to some kind of uh, action in the world is just always going to be limited. And so we should always be pretty modest about how well we can do that.
0: And now, a word from Editor Bain.
2: So, as I terrorize this submission, I will feed its authors hope to poison their souls. I will let them believe they can eventually get an accept so that you can watch them clamor to address the reviewer's helpful
0: comments. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Elizabeth Pop Berman from SUNY Albany. She's the author of Creating a Market University with Princeton University Press. Her next book coming out soon, Thinking Like an Economist, How Economics Became the Language of U.S. Public Policy, also with Princeton University Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at SoChannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you.